Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Sermon today is called Free to Fail. How many of you have ever failed? And those of you that didn't raise your hand are liars. Just kidding. <laughs> well, I'm not, because actually the Bible says that we've all failed, right? Well, Romans 3.23, and I've blundered this one in the past. I'm going to say it correctly this morning. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we've all failed in some way, form, or fashion. And if you say you're without sin or have not sinned, you're calling God a liar. That's what... First John tells us. As we start this sermon this morning, this love does sermon on this freedom to fail, uh, I came across this great story. And actually, I was, uh, how old was I? I was about three years old at the time that this story happened. During the 1978, uh, during the firemen strike in England. Do you know the firemen uh, went on strike in England in the late 70s? I didn't know this. I did some research on it. The British Army took over the emergency firefighting while the firemen were on strike. On January the 14th of that year, they were called out by an elderly lady in South London to retrieve her cat, which some firemen have to get called out to do because they got those trucks with the long ladders and everything. They arrived with this impressive haste. They got there in quick time. Very cleverly and carefully, they rescued this lady's cat, and they started to drive away, but the lady was so grateful that she invited the whole squad of heroes in for tea and crumpets. <laughs> Driving off later with fond farewells and warm waving of arms uh, and, and hugs and all that, they ran over the cat and killed it. Failure. <laughs> Failure is a reality to life. You might work your tail off to do the right thing, but come up empty-handed sometimes. Sometimes we go headlong into failure. We're like, yeah, I know I'm failing and I'm all right with it. And we go, ba-boom, and straight into it. And we're willing to suffer whatever consequence there is. But some of us don't willy-nilly just go into failure. Most of us don't start out the morning and say, I'm going to fail today. Woohoo! We just don't do that. Because we set out usually in our daily routines to say, I'm going to accomplish this, I'm going to accomplish that, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to get to the end of my day however naive this might think, having accomplished everything I set out to do and feel like I'm a success. But you know what happens? Life happens. And in the midst of our day, something trips us up or multiple things tend to trip us up. And we have a choice in the matter. We can stumble over those things that trip us up or we can slow down a bit and say, okay, let me take a lay of the land and make sure I know where I'm stepping before I step headlong into something that's going to cause more trouble and more difficulty. But what do you do when you fail? Do you feel free to fail? And when you fail, 
what do you do with that failure? You see, I think a lot of us like to hang on to failure. We're masochists in some regard. Because even, even when other people might let us off, we won't let us off the hook. Some of, there's a, there's a difference, and this is what I want to get to today. Failure can either define you, or it can strengthen you and mold you. As a pastor, sadly, I see so many people that live with, with failure as a, the defining factor of their life. The way they talk about themselves, the way they've maybe been talked about by their loved ones growing up, their parents, their grandparents. You're, you're nothing but a failure. You're never going to amount to anything. Maybe your coworker or your boss has said that. Maybe you've just said it to yourself and you've carried this weight of failure around with you because you know when you fail, it's just proving that what others say about you is right. Or when you fail, what you think about yourself is right. You see, the enemy uses tactics like this to hold us down. Because, as I mention all the time, one of my favorite verses, John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus is talking and he says, the thief, he's masterful. What does he do best? Steal, kill, destroy. But Jesus says, I've come that you might have life abundantly. Isn't it interesting that the very Jesus who says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, says, I have come that you might have life abundantly. Listen, I know you've all failed, Jesus is saying. I know you're not perfect. I know you have, have not lived up to God's standard. That's why I'm here, Jesus says, because you can't do it. You fail and fail and fail and fail, and for centuries the Israelites and the Jewish people have failed. Everybody has failed. And so God looks at his son and says, it's time. And he chooses a woman by the name of Mary, a young teenage girl. She's not perfect either, but she's pure of heart. And he says, you know, Mary, I've chosen you. You're going to conceive a son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid. It's going to be okay. I'm going to be with you in more ways than you realize. And Joseph, who she's betrothed to, Joseph was a good man, an honorable man. He was going to actually send her away in private so as not to disgrace her publicly, which he could have done. And that same angel comes to him in Matthew chapter 2 and says, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Stick by her side. Stay with her. The son that she's carrying, you're going to name him Jesus, which means salvation, or he will save. And he will be Emmanuel, God with us. Do you remember that from last week? Did you take your homework assignment seriously? Were you Jesus with skin on to somebody else? Did you take that homework assignment of spending an hour with somebody, listening to them and pulling out of them what's going on in their lives? Did you quit something this week? I hope you did. You see, 
what looked like failure in the world's eyes, this young woman who is not married but getting pregnant was actually designed by God to bring about salvation in the world. And God brought Jesus into the world to do what we could not do, save ourselves. We couldn't live by the law and do it perfectly. That's why there was animal sacrifice, so that blood covering of that animal would cover the sins of our families. Thank God we don't have to do that anymore. Because Jesus became that once and for all blood sacrifice, the writer of Hebrews tells us. He is the priest, the high priest. And in him we have life everlasting. So that when we fail, when we sin, we have an advocate to the Father who intercedes on our behalf, saying, Father, they're one of mine. Don't count this against them. I took their punishment. So what do we do when we fail? Do we allow failure to define us? Or do we allow it to grow us, strengthen us, so that we don't go back and do that same failure again. I have in your worship folder today, and I saw some of you wearing these already, you've jumped, the, you've jumped way ahead. You see these name tags, okay? This name tag isn't for your name. So you're gonna have to scratch your name out. And uh, I want you to take the first name tag. Hold on to the second one. The first name tag that some of you are even wearing, I want you to write the nickname that best describes you. I don't know why, when I, was in, uh, when I was in high school, I had a summer job at my uncle's golf course, and I was kind of the grunt that would go around and pick up sticks and rocks off the fairway, and uh, I, I would get out early in the morning, I got on the greens mower, and you have to, if you're gonna mow the greens, which are the place where you put the ball into the hole, if you're gonna do that, you have to get out around five or 5.30 in the morning so that little tractor had headlights on it because it was always dark. Um, for whatever reason, the other workers that I worked with, I was the grunt, I was the little punk, and of course I was the boss's uh, nephew. Uh, they called me Homer. I don't know why. Uh, I mean, you know, <laughs> Homer, it, it, it stuck somehow, uh, and then when I left the golf course, it never followed me. Thank goodness for that. But, you know, that was the time that the Simpsons were around, and I guess I looked like the bald fat guy, uh, the dad on there. I don't know, but they, hey, Homer. And, of course, I'm from Kentucky, and these guys have this really weird twang, uh, and, and uh, take it for what it's worth. So that's probably what I would put on mine, but it's really not a descriptive word other than you picture, again, Homer from Homer Simpson's, or the Simpsons, this, this bald fat guy running around. Maybe it was a self-fulfilling prophecy because I wasn't, and I, when, I was, when I was 16 or 15, I wasn't uh, bald nor fat. I was, I was really pretty much a hunk. So, um, <laughs> and you can look that up on Facebook. And I'm moving on. So, Write the nickname that best describes you. I'm not going to say put it on your chest. If you want to, you're welcome to. But hold on to that, okay? And we'll come back to that later. As we continue the Love Does series today, we think of multiple different characters in Scripture that were failures. Guess what? Everybody but Jesus in the Scripture was a failure. Trust me. Try me on this. Find somebody in Scripture besides Jesus that was not a failure or did not have failure in their lives. Adam and Eve, let's start with the first persons. Did they fail? Uh, what about Cain and Abel? 
Uh, let's continue on down. Uh, let's get to Noah. Oh, here's a tough one. I asked my, uh, I asked my seventh grade Old Testament class this at Penn Christian Academy. Was Noah a failure? And the kids are like, no, he was good. He was righteous. And I'm like, what do you do? The first thing he did when he gets off the boat, he plants a vineyard and gets drunk. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And his son Ham, Shem, and Japheth, were they failures? What's Ham do? He goes in. <laughs> I don't know exactly what happened in that tent. And scholar, I'm telling you, if you don't want to get weirded out, don't go read certain scholars' uh, renditions on that passage, because it's freaky. But it, all it says is Ham goes in there and goes, he sees his dad is laying naked after, you know, getting sloshed the night before, and has a really bad headache the, the next day, and he's laying there like, Ugh, but he's naked. Sorry, this is not a part of my sermon today. We may have to edit this out for those listening online. But honestly, he's laying there and Ham comes out and goes, hey dudes, dad's naked. And they're like, oh, are you serious? And they get a blanket and it says they, they back up into the tent like this because they don't want to look at that hairy old man laying there. And they cover him up and then they walk out and of course Noah comes to and they tell him what Ham did, which we're really not sure other than seeing his nakedness and, and uh, Ham is cursed after that. So failure, right? Well, who else is a failure? David, this mighty king, the, the, the biggest and most powerful king in Israel. He was called by God to replace Saul, was anointed as king. People would sing his praises. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. David was awesome. You know what the Bible tells us about David? He was a man after God's own heart. So surely he wasn't a failure. Except one day when he sent his troops and commanders out to fight battles in the springtime, when all kings would go out to war, he stayed behind because he felt like he'd earned a break. And he's standing on his rooftop palace looking out over the city and just right next door is this lady, not sure who she is at first, she's bathing on her rooftop and not in clothes. She's bathing nude and he's like, a wowza. And he decides to send one of his servants over to get her. And then she, he brings her over. And of course, he's the king over everybody. And he sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. And he's like, whoops. That's exactly what it says. That's, that's Brandon's translation. And so he devises a plan. What's he going to do? Well, this is what he does. He brings, Uzziah, or he brings Uriah in from the front lines of battle, which is Bathsheba's husband. Well, not front lines, but brings him in from the battlefield. And he tries to trick him into sleeping with his wife so he can cover up the fact that he got her pregnant. But he's an honorable, honorable man. He will not sleep with his wife as purity rituals go while there is a battle going on that he should be a part of. So he doesn't sleep with his wife. 
And he's like, shoot, I'll get him drunk. And he gets him drunk and sends him home. And he still has the wherewithal not to sleep with his wife. And he's starting to get really angry at this time, David is. And he sends him out, sends him with this message to the commanding officer out on the battlefield. And the commanding officer was supposed to put this guy, Bathsheba's husband, in the front line of battle where the battle is the fiercest. Why? To make sure he dies. Because as soon as he dies and the mourning time is over, the time of mourning, then he will take Bathsheba and marry her and look none the worse. Was David a failure? Did he fail? Of course he did. Everybody in Scripture outside of Jesus is a failure. And I don't think that's a mistake. And here's the reason why. Because I think what it proves to us is that Scripture puts the worst of characters in there to show us how God can redeem them. How God uses the broken, the downcast, the downtrodden, the ones that royally mess up to do his work. Because he believes in us even when we don't believe in ourselves. One character in Scripture is Peter. We come to Peter in, uh, in the New Testament and the Gospels. He becomes one of Jesus' disciples. And if, you're not, if you've never heard of Peter, he's, he's kind of a loud, bolsterous type. He's always the one to raise his hand first in class, like this, <laughs> whether he's right or wrong. And so in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has uh, amassed several followers, disciples of his own, but there are these inner 12 that follow him, and Peter is one of the 12. <clears throat> and when Jesus came to this, this place called Caesarea Philippi, he sets his disciples down and has some one-on-one -on -one time with them, and he says, who do people say that I am? So Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, who do people say that I am? Or who do people say the Son of Man is, referring to himself in the third person? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist. One of the other disciples pipes up, some say Elijah. Well, others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. So that's the word about Jesus on the street. When they've gone to these towns and Jesus has done miracles and he's spoken about the kingdom of God the word going around about who Jesus is that he's one of these other characters somehow back from the dead then he asked them and I can only imagine what it must have been like to be in that circle that day when he looks each and every one of them in the eye looking around the group and he says okay who do you guys say that I am who do you say that I am And Simon Peter, actually before Simon became Peter, Simon was Simon. Actually, in that day and age, I had a conversation with my class, my sixth grade class this past week, and they asked, uh, do they have last names back in that day? Uh, yes and no. Your last name was who you were the son or the daughter of. And as you go through the centuries, it was where are you from? So. Uh, Brandon of Stanford, Kentucky, right? So it'd be Brandon of Stanford. And so eventually it turned into Brandon Stanford, right? Simon was Simon Bar Jonah. His name wasn't Peter. He wasn't named Peter by his parents, 
okay? I want you to know this in case you didn't know this. So Simon Bar, son of Jonah, or if you want to translate it to, to, into English, Simon, son of John, okay? That's what his name was. So Simon pipes up, who we come to know as Peter, and he says, well, you're, you're the Messiah, or you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, doggy that's exactly what he said even though it's not in there okay i'm adding to the scripture and i'm not supposed to do that i'm sure he didn't do that but i know jesus was beaming when a teacher or a master or a rabbi hears their student actually giving the correct answer and it didn't come from you know book knowledge that teacher's like yes yes that is right You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You didn't learn this from any human being. Oh, how awesome is that? Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, before Dwayne Johnson. Peter was called the rock. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the powers of hell will not conquer it, and I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Did you know that not too long after that, pretty much within the same setting, Jesus begins to tell them, guess what, guys, I'm not going to be with you much longer. I'm going to have to suffer some great things But don't worry, I'll rise again on the third day. And Peter, not wanting to rebuke Jesus publicly, pulls him aside and says, "Uh uh-uh, we're not going to let this happen to you. What are you talking about? This is nonsense. And you know what Jesus says? Satan, get behind me. Did you know that happened? In that same chapter, just moments later, Peter, you are the rock, and I'll build my church on you. Get behind me, Satan. Is is Jesus schizophrenic? No. You see, what Jesus knows is that Peter gets it right, but he sometimes gets it wrong. And this is one of those areas he got it wrong. Because reminiscent of his time in the wilderness when he was being tempted by Satan, Jesus had to rebuke Satan and say, get behind me. And now Peter, who who, who knows that the God of heaven has revealed to him that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, doesn't know that exhaustively. And so when Jesus starts to say, this is my Father's will, I'm going to die, but I'll come back. Don't worry about it. Peter's now trying to step in and and stop what the Father has willed and purposed in Jesus' life to bring redemption. And Jesus says, you don't really know the things of God when you talk like this. You're being an adversary. That's painful to hear. It could have crushed Peter, and I'm sure it did to some degree. But what does Peter do? Does he run away? Does he go back home and wallow in his failure? No, 
Peter stays with Jesus. And we find in Luke chapter 22, starting with verse 54, Jesus is arrested. The same Peter who had been a follower of Jesus says to Jesus just prior to this, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be suffering some great things here soon, but don't worry, I'll come back. And Peter says, no, 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 we're not going to let this happen to you. He'd already rebuked Jesus for this and was called Satan, remember? Uh, But now he says, we're not going to let this happen to you. We'll rise up. We'll fight for you. And Jesus looks him in the eyes of this, Peter, (laughs) before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And so we pick up this part of the story. So they arrested him, Jesus, and led him to the high priest's home. And Peter followed at a distance. The guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat around it. And Peter joined the guards right there around the fire. A servant girl noticed him in the firelight, and she began staring at him. (laughs) Kids stare all the time, right? Right? I mean, they just have this uncanny ability to just... And you're at a restaurant, and they just stare, and they look, and you're like, do I have something on my face? But this servant girl is staring at Peter while he's sitting around the fire with the court guards, and uh, in the courtyard with the guards, and, and, and she says, hey, this man was one of Jesus' followers. But Peter denied it. Woman, this little girl, woman, he said, I don't even know him. After a while, someone else looked at him and said, wait a minute, you must be one of them. No, man. He's getting all groovy in his 1970s diction. No, man, I'm not, Peter retorted. About an hour later, someone else insisted, this must be one of them because he's a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. In some of the versions of Scripture, it said he cursed because he was angry. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Now keep in mind where Jesus is. He falls at a distance. He sees where Jesus is. He's in the courtyard being tried by the Sanhedrin after his arrest. And after the rooster crows, Jesus locks eyes with Peter again (laughs) to be a fly on the wall. At that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered what the Lord said before the rooster crows, tomorrow morning you will deny deny three times that you even know me. What does Peter do? He left the courtyard weeping bitterly. Did he go hang himself? Did he go commit suicide? Did he go do something foolish beyond that? It just says he walked away and wept bitterly. Jesus then is beaten, bruised, hung on a cross. Disciples have scattered at this point with the exception of John and the women, Jesus' mother, and some other women that were there. He breathes his last, 
and says, into my hands I commend my spirit, and he died. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, Pharisees, and an aristocrat, Joseph of Arimathea, says, I have a freshly hewn tomb that nobody has ever been laid in. I want to donate that to Jesus. And so they go before Pontius Pilate, and they take Jesus' body down. They do a quick wrapping and burial process, and they take him and lay him on the slab in the tomb, thinking it was finished, literally. And three days later, the stone rolls away, and Jesus walks out of the tomb in a fully resurrected body. Later on, Jesus comes to Peter and the other disciples that had kind of gone back to do their work. Jesus is standing on the shore, and Peter, being a fisherman by trade, has gone back to fishing for fish rather than for men. They'd had an unfruitful night of fishing in John chapter 21, it says. And they couldn't tell who this man was off in the distance on the shoreline. And so he calls out to them, hey, how's the fishing going? And they said, it's not good. And he says, throw your nets over the other side of the boat. You remember where Jesus or where Peter was when he called him the first, when Jesus called him the first time? He had been coming in from a long night of fishing and Jesus said the same thing three years earlier. When they started to pull the nets in, it was full. And Peter realizes instantly, it's Jesus. And he doesn't wait for the boats to row ashore. He jumps out of the boat and he takes off running through this thick water that's more than probably chest high, waist high, whatever, and he's running to get to the shore. He finally gets to the shore. <laughs> and he's with the one that he had rejected and denied. By this time, the disciples have all come ashore and Jesus had been baking some fish. And they have breakfast together around this fire in the early hours of the morning as sun is just beginning to rise and after they're done eating jesus pulls peter aside and he says listen peter i gotta talk to you you got a minute <laughs> you got a minute it's not what it says i just adding to that part and of course what's peter gonna say nah i gotta go back out and go fishing again but he pulls peter aside and he says peter do you love me Peter looks at him in the eyes and says, I love you. And Jesus says, okay, feed my sheep. Peter knew what this meant. Because you remember when Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, he says, you are now Peter, the rock, and on you I will build my church. A few minutes later, he looks at Peter again. He says, hey, Peter, do you love me? And Peter looks at him and says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. 
then I want you to feed my lambs. Will you do that? And a little while later, Jesus looks at Peter in the eyes a third time. And he says, Peter, do you love me? Now, Peter's hurt by this point. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And feed my sheep. And then he begins to tell him about his future. Peter, you're going to go through some rough stuff. When you were young, you were able to do what you liked to do. You dressed yourself. You went wherever you wanted to go. But when you're older, you'll stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. And Jesus said this to let him know the kind of death that he would glorify God. And then Jesus told him what he had told him the very first time he met him. Come follow me. And I'll make you a fisher of men. Peter, having been fishing that night, was probably running through his mind how he had denied Jesus three times. He was probably living with failure. He was probably carrying the weight of that, thinking, what a royal mess up I am. I can never be forgiven for denying my Savior. What's wrong with me? I'm In one breath, I'm telling him, I will fight for you to the death. And then the next minute, I'm, what am I doing? What, did I let fear get a hold of me? Was I too worried about risking it all for him? What came over me? And Jesus, who is a glorious lover of people, and a glorious man who gives chance after chance after chance, who forgives more than 70 times seven, says, Peter, I, I haven't forgotten you. Yeah, you messed up. But your mess up isn't so bad that I can't redeem you. But you have to be willing. Do you love me? I can't make you love me. Do you love me? I can't force you to love me. Do you love me? And in one fell swoop, in three occurrences, Jesus wants Peter to know, I'm not holding this against you. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Now you're saying, Brandon hasn't gotten to any of the points. The points are my conclusion. The first point is this, Peter wasn't afraid to take a risk. Okay? How wasn't he afraid to take a risk? Because he was always raising his hand. He was always blurting something out. Did he get it right every time? Definitely not. Sometimes he royally messed up. He wasn't afraid. Some of us are afraid to take risks. Why? Because we're afraid of failure. Right? We don't want other people to look at us and think that we're failures. We don't want to feel like a failure, and so we don't risk. 
But what kind of risk does it take to follow Jesus? It takes everything to follow him. It takes great risk. It took risk for Peter, Andrew, James, and John to lay their nets down and and give up everything to follow him. That was their livelihood. They had families at home. They had everything to take care of. And he says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers and men. In essence, he's saying, do you trust me? Come follow me. We're not willing to take risks, many of us. And a lot of us come to the end of our lives not having risked anything for Jesus, and then we have this boatload of regret. If I could do it all over again, I would have done this, and I would do that, and I would live this way, and I would do that thing, but yet we live with failure. And we come to the end of our day saying, oh, I royally messed up. I shouldn't have done this thing or that thing, but you've lived with the weight of it for so long that it has become such an ingrown part of you, you don't know how to get rid of it. And Jesus says, cast your cares on me because I care for you. He says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy burdened, and you can find rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am meek and humble at heart, and you can find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That stuff you've been carrying around is a lie. Let it go. The second thing about Peter is that Peter's failure humbled him, but it did not destroy him. And that's what God does with failure. He is able to redeem us from our failures and not allow them to destroy us. But if you want to hold on to your failure, it will ultimately destroy you. There are two characters in the 12 disciples. One is named Peter, another Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot allowed his failure to drive him to suicide. And I believe 100% if Judas had come back to Jesus, Jesus would have opened his arms and said, welcome home. You're forgiven. But Judas couldn't forgive himself. And in his failure, he died and was eternally separated from God. The third thing we know about Peter is that Peter was willing to move beyond his failure. He was willing to move beyond it as we see Jesus bringing him through a process of restoration in John chapter 21. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter Peter could have said, I love you, God. I love you, Jesus, but I can't follow you anymore. I'm not worthy. I love you, but, I love you, but. And a lot of us say that, don't we? I love you, God, but. I love you, God, but. Peter was willing to move beyond his failure. Are you willing to move beyond yours? Some of you have been defined by failure. And the nicknames you've written on those cards in front of you may be silly, may be funny, But Jesus, who is a redeemer and a savior, wants to give you a new name like he gave Peter a new name. 
And so right now, you have another card, another name tag. And if you could put yourself in a place to see you the way Jesus sees you, it wouldn't be as a failure. And so what I want you to write on there, and if you are not this, don't write it down. A child of God. A child of God is one who has believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior of his or her life and who have committed their lives to Christ for the rest of their days, failures and all, willing to surrender every hurt, habit, hang-up, everything in their lives that has defined them up to this point, they're willing to surrender all of that to take on the identity of child of God servant of the most high king see i believe what the psalmist says we were all knit together in our mother's womb and that we are fearfully and wonderfully made yes we make a mess of things at times but jesus sees beyond the mess into the person he created and he says you're worthy you're worthy you're worthy you're worthy and i love you but you can never find your true worth unless you find it in me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. No one can come to the Father except through me. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. The sheep know my voice and they hear it. But you can't come into the sheepfold except through the gate. And I am the gate, Jesus says in John chapter 10. It's a willingness to surrender your failure, admit that you're wrong, but let that go to take up this banner of Christ who set you free from sin and death. You need to feel the freedom to fail, but you don't need to be foolishly failing. Does that make sense? Consider some of these failures in history as I close. In 1894, there was an English teacher who noted on a teenager's report card that this student was a conspicuous lack of success. You want to take a guess at who that, that teenager was in 1894? Winston Churchill. In 1902, the poetry editor of Atlantic Monthly returned a stack of poems with this note to the author. Our magazine has no room for your vigorous verse. Poet's name, Robert Frost. In 1905, the University of Bern turned down a doctoral dissertation and noted on the dissertation that it was irrelevant and fanciful. The writer of that paper's name was Albert Einstein. William Brown writes, failure is an event, never a person. I want to say that again. Failure is always an event. It's never a person. God doesn't create failures. So where are you today? Who does Jesus call you? Because if you truly are being honest with yourself, Jesus would not call you something derogatory. He would say, the one I love the one I care for, the one I gave myself for. 
He would call you by many names, but none of them would be horrible. But the one name he wants to call you is his child. And you can't become his child without surrendering your life to him. So I want you to do something else this week. Keep that name tag. Place it in a place that you're going to see it. The one that is about Jesus saying about you, not about your friends or yourself. And remind yourself, I'm somebody that God loves. This isn't some psychological, good, feel-good thing. This is really, I'm somebody that Jesus loves. I'm somebody that Jesus saw worth it to go to the cross for. And if he can see me that worthy, then why do I need to carry around all this baggage? I need to let it go. And another thing I want you to do this week is take a risk. Take a risk. Be willing to fail. Take an exercise class at the YMCA. <laughs> Be willing to fail miserably. Take an art class. They have these art things uh, where you can go paint one painting and you can look like a royal failure and, and be okay. Embrace that for a moment, right? But don't allow those failures to define you. Take a risk. Do something amazing because you are an amazing creation in the sight of God. But be willing to release your burdens to him, your sin to him. Be willing to confess that sin, to be humbled by him, to be redeemed by him. As our worship team comes forward to close us out today, I always offer this up. You come to my right, your left, there's an altar down here where you can kneel and be prayed for. Some of you need prayer for healing. Some of you need prayer for, for salvation. Some of you need prayer for this dry period that's going on in your life and you just are wandering in the wilderness. Whatever the case, come to my right, your left, and pray. Somebody will pray with you. If you want to reckon with God alone, if you want people to leave you alone and you just want to come and make a commitment to pray by yourself, you can come to my left, your right, and, and you can pray there and nobody's going to bother you, just you and God. And yes, you can pray where you're seated, but as I mention all the time, there's something about making a physical move that connects the heart to the mind. And it does take risk. Because some of you are saying, I don't want people to look at me. <laughs> right? Some of you do want people to look at you. I know your personality types. You're like, look at me. Okay, that's me. But <clears throat> some of you are like, that scares the dickens out of me. It's okay. This is a safe place. This is a place of hope and redemption. Take a risk. Step out. Father, we love you this morning. And God, we know that you are a redeemer. That your love for us goes beyond anything we can comprehend. And that, Heavenly Father, you give us life everlasting through your Son, Jesus Christ, if we only believe in him and surrender our lives to him. Help us to confess that with our lips to not be ashamed of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of our lives. Mend us, the broken parts of us. Help us to learn that we don't have to be defined by our failures, but we can be set free in Jesus Christ. And if the Son has set us free, remind us of the promise that we can truly be free indeed. Thank you, Father. We love you. Amen.
Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.